and so uh, these are questions that you guys have given to us. Uh, questions that you guys have yourselves. And so this is an opportunity for us to learn together. These are questions you guys are asking, and now we get to come together and wrestle with them and learn together. Now, growing up, I remember this distinct sense of when I was in church that, that there were questions you did not ask, okay? Uh, a lot of this was unspoken, the, the, whether it's because you should know the answer to this question or the question was inappropriate or what have you. Um, there were topics that were off base uh, growing up. The reality is this is not helpful at all. God can handle any question that we have. Whatever the deepest, darkest questions you yourselves have, you can throw those at God. He can handle those questions. And so as we read through the Bible, uh, what you find is that the Bible does not shy away from messy realities. There is a lot of mess in the Bible. And because of this reality, we should not shy away from messiness either. We should push into it, and we should wrestle with it. And so this is why we ask you to ask anything in this sermon series, so that we can together seek depth, that we can seek clarity with one another, and that we can seek to grow together. And so that is what we are going to do as we venture into this sermon series. So we kick off this sermon series with uh, a sermon topic that is probably one of the least contentious. It's more of a softball for me to kind of get this thing going. Uh, so our first question, and this is a, a two-part question, is what is Acts 29 and why are we a part of it? So I'm going to answer these questions as we go through. I'm not going to give kind of a summative statement right up front here. So Center Church in October will be four years old, okay? And, and we have been a part of this organization called Acts 29 for just over a year. Last March, we became a partner church in Acts 29. The reality is many of you have found us through the Acts 29 website, that this is a place that you've either had some interaction with Acts 29 in the past, uh, and so you've gone and you've looked on their website and you found us because of that reality. So uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the name, Acts 29. I want to give you a little bit of history of Acts 29. Uh, and then we're going to look at kind of their tagline uh, and kind of work through that. And then we're going to look at five theological distinctives that they have as an organization. So that's how we'll be spending our time this morning. So let's start with the name, Acts 29. In the New Testament, there is a book named Acts. And the book of Acts begins with a number of really powerful events. So uh, we have Jesus ascending to return to his Father. We have an event called Pentecost, where God gives his Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit would come and live in people and help guide, instruct, and lead them in life. Uh, we, we hear powerful sermons being given. Uh, and there are signs and wonders that are happening here at the beginning of the church in Acts. The church explodes and it grows massively in these early days. But as we read on through the book of Acts, 
there is gut-wrenching struggle. So we find Christians being killed. Opposition is found in a number of ways, in, through government authorities, through cultural barriers, through natural disasters, through demonic forces, injustice, and intense suffering and persecution. And amidst all of this opposition that is being directed at the church is the news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, what we call the gospel. And the thread that runs through the gospel is that of grace, Jesus' kindness, the unearned favor that he extends to people. So Acts records then how the grace of Jesus transforms people, how it sustains people, and how it ultimately saves people. And then we get to the end of Acts. So it, it's basically just tracking the church. Okay, it starts off magnificently, and then we get to the end of Acts. And what we find at the end of Acts is a man named Paul. Paul wrote most of the New Testament, or at least the majority of the New Testament. And what we find at the end of Acts is Paul sitting in a prison, okay? Talking to people about the gospel. He's entertaining visitors from morning to night so that he can share the good news of Jesus with them. As these people come, some people come and they listen and they, they love what they hear and they believe the gospel. And other people come and they listen to Paul and they reject what he has to say. But what we find through the course of the book of Acts is this progression. It starts really spectacularly, and then it ends really in a, in a mundane fashion. But in all of it, what we find from beginning to the, to the end is that the good news of Jesus is being preached. Acts records how the news of Jesus spread throughout the ancient world, and then how Jesus' church was formed in the midst of all of this. And so people are united around this person, this man, Jesus Christ. And what Jesus does then is he forms a family that regularly gathers around him, around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So, so that's the book of Acts, okay? And there's a ton more details that we could go into, all right? But the book of Acts has 28 chapters in it, okay? So Acts 29, the name Acts 29 is an acknowledgement that the gospel still needs to be spread. That this news of who Jesus is and what he has done still needs to be proclaimed. That there are still many more people who need to hear of Jesus Christ. So Acts 29, as an organization, began in 1998. Okay, so it, it's, it's a newer organization, just 21 years old. At this point right now, there are about 730 churches who are a part of Acts 29. So it has grown pretty quickly in these 21 years. Acts 29 is not a denomination, okay? The, we, we typically can tend to think of things, is this Baptist, is this Presbyterian, is this Methodist, is it Lutheran, is it Catholic? That is not what Acts 29 is. It is not a denomination. It is what we would call a network of churches, a movement of churches who have gathered around a few core beliefs. Now, uh, much of what I'm going to say this morning is kind of the positive 
uh, of Acts 29, but I think it's always helpful to understand kind of the underbelly of things and, and what are maybe some of the dark spots of organization. So that's, I want to tell you a little bit about that with Acts 29. So uh, the president of Acts 29 would tell you that it is an, in, an imperfect organization, okay? Acts 29 has their flaws. They have their blind spots. So they, they're not even aware of all of their shortcomings. And they will always have them, okay? Any organization will. And so it's just always helpful to hear a leader of an organization say that reality. That, that's just how organizations are. About five to six years ago, though, Acts 29 almost died as an organization. So the leader of the movement at that time was removed for abusive leadership, and his church was the main financial support for Acts 29. But instead of dying, Acts 29 has flourished and grown over these last six to seven years. A new president was installed at that time. His name is Matt Chandler. Uh, some of you maybe have heard of him, and he reset the vision for Acts 29 at that time. And one of the calls that he made, or the directions he wanted to head uh, with Acts 29, is that he said that Acts 29 wants to be known for a number of things. And I'm not going to get into all of those things, but one of them I want to highlight right now. Acts 29 wants to be known for holiness and for humility. Okay, they want to be known for holiness and humility, because these are two things that oftentimes are at odds with one another. So there's this desire to know the Bible, to trust Jesus, who is the epitome of holiness. We're not going to find holiness outside of Jesus, okay? All holiness is connected to Jesus Christ. And so we want to live then in ways that reflect his powerful work in us. We believe in Jesus so that then he can shape and form us in the ways that he wants to, so that he can form holiness in us, but never in a way where we ever feel superior to others. If you look at the landscape of the Bible, what happens is you get all these religious people, and they try to follow all of these rules really well, and what always ends up happening is that those people will view themselves as better than everyone else. They'll try to elevate themselves up on a pedestal. They'll look down on the people who aren't following the laws and the rules as well as they are, and they, creates this, they create this separation. And so uh, Acts 29 does not want to have that dynamic within its churches. We might believe differently than others, but we always want to do that humbly. And I would say that this would be my desire for us as an Acts 29 church, that we would be known for holiness and for humility, that we would understand that sin is a big deal. We don't want to just kind of play with sin. We, we want to acknowledge sin as devastating and horrific. It's, it's abhorrent. That's what sin is. We never wanna, want to minimize it, but, but also to always do this in a way uh, where we're seeking to do it humbly, where we're seeking to listen to others, where we're seeking to cultivate peace in the midst of all of this. Okay, so Acts 29, as an organization, uh, what they want to be about is 
planting churches, okay? And I'm going to get into more of what that means, planting churches. But ultimately, they have a particular kind of church that they are seeking to form. So we're going to uncover and discover this particular kind of church by looking at their tagline and then looking at their core theological distinctives. So their tagline is this. A diverse global family of church planting churches. A diverse global family of church planting churches. Okay, so Acts 29 believes Jesus undertook a mission that was intended for all peoples. Okay, not just one type of people. And when we think of diverse, we oftentimes think primarily of ethnicity. Right? Acts 29 desires to be global inviting all ethnicities because this is God's heart. Th this video uh, that we almost watched uh, really helps to capture this reality. Revelation 7-9 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is a picture of heaven and this picture of heaven provides us this glimpse that it's people from every nation and tribes and peoples and languages it's not just one ethnicity it is a diverse people but acts 29 isn't just concerned with ethnic diversity and so in the past number of years they've tried to develop a little bit more when we talk about diversity yes we mean ethnic diversity but what else do we mean by diversity and so here are a couple of things that they've done in the past couple of years they've begun a couple of initiatives to address rural people so acts 29 was founded on the premise of going to urban areas that's where their focus was and they realized that at in doing this that they are forgetting our, about the majority of the population in the world and so they've begun this initiative known as the rural collective they, they also began an initiative to address poor places because what they found is that a lot of places that need the gospel, that need to hear about Jesus, that they're inhibitive to planting churches because churches need money. And when you go to poor places, there's not a lot of money there to sustain the church. And so they began this initiative known as Church in Hard Places. So Acts 29 wants to be a diverse, global family. God's glory is seen with unity in diversity. And, and Acts 29 believes this. So when as a group of people and as a group of churches, when we can prioritize something over our simple preferences, we can say the gospel is ultimately what's going to unite us, that we can be united together around the gospel while being diverse about a number of other things, that there is beauty in that reality. God's glory is seen in that. Acts 29 desires also to be a family. They want to be known for their distinctive community. So not just some random people who go to a certain church uh, week after week, but for each church to function as a family, okay? So that when we gather here on Sunday, this is an extension of everything else that's happening throughout the week. We, we want our lives to interact with one another, to cross over with each other. We want to function like a family and then to view ourselves within this greater family of 
Acts 29. So at Center Church, we have community as a core value. And there's this call that we make repeatedly that we would live this out daily, okay? And not just because Acts 29 holds this as a value, but because of what the Bible says, that we would be a people that love one another. And in order to love one another, our lives have to be touching each other. We have to be crossing paths with one another. We have to know each other and what we're walking through. We want to be a church that weeps with one another as we walk through really difficult seasons, that we would never do that alone, that we would always know that we have other people around us to care for us, to love us, to hold us up in the midst of difficult times, that we would serve one another, that we would confess our sins to each other, that we would share the gifts that God has given to us with each other, that we would be hospitable to one another in the church as well as those outside of the church as well, that we would encourage each other and build each other up, and ultimately that we would preach the gospel to one another over and over. Okay, so Acts 29 wants to be a diverse global family of church-planting churches, okay? So Acts 29 doesn't just want to plant churches, okay? They want to plant church-planting churches. This is the example that we see in the New Testament. So, a church is not just a country club where, where people gather to consume, okay? Despite the fact that m- many examples in our culture would say, that's what church is. You just come and you receive, you get your tank filled up, and then you go back out into the work week. Acts 29 wants to push against that reality. We gather together, and yes, we want to have a ton of fun when we are together, but we gather together to build each other up, to grow with one another, and to mature each other in our faith. So there's this reality about the gospel, okay? And about Jesus' mission. What Jesus came here to do... uh, was to rope people in, to convince people, to woo people that his way is better than any other way. But there's this reality then that we're always sent out, okay? We gather, but then we also scatter. And so Jesus' mission naturally multiplies. Jesus' mission to come and save people naturally multiplies. So to be a Christian is to be concerned for those who are not Christians, okay? And not just to be concerned about non-Christians, but also to be concerned about helping other Christians grow. So it's not just us coming here, receiving, consuming, worried about ourselves. We come here to this place so that we can care for one another. We can build each other up. We can be the church to one another. A Christian church will engage in helping more people trust Jesus. Christian church will engage in helping more people trust Jesus. Not be concerned about just building a brand or building an empire, but about helping people know Jesus and building them up in their faith. What we've found, what studies have found, is that the best way to engage non-Christians is through the planting of other churches. 
And this is why Acts 29 wants to keep planting churches. Uh, another rea reality of church planting churches is that as churches are planted, they are best able to engage the culture and speak to that current culture. The majority of churches, when they are planted, they get stuck in that cultural moment and don't change for the next 40 to 50 years. And so part of being a church planting church as you would send out other churches is you're continually having to think about what is the cultural dynamic that we're having to address? What are the, the questions that the culture is asking at this point in time? And so there's this tendency to have to continual, continually change and address what is going on in culture and answering the questions that culture is asking. And so in being a church planting church or Acts 29 being an organization where they are wanting to plant church planting churches, they want their churches to understand that the people in those churches need to be the church, okay? It, it's not just going to church, okay? We don't just do church. We are the church, and, and that's what they want to help their churches understand. The people in their churches understand that we are the church, and we need to be the church, and the outflow of being the church is multiplication. We never just plant a church just to be uh, an entity in and of ourselves. We always want to be looking out to the other places, other areas where, where churches need to be planted. Gospel-centered churches need to be planted. So at the end of the day, it would be appropriate to say Acts 29 is a single-issue organization. They start churches. They plant churches. That's what they want to be about. And they want those churches to plant more churches. Throughout history, this has been God's method to advance the gospel, to spread the gospel over the face of the earth. And so we at Center Church, we also desire to be involved in church planting. Whatever the season of life it is for a certain church, it's going to look differently. For us at this point, church planting engagement involves financial support of other churches that are trying to get off the ground. That's one way in which we are involved in church planting right now. We hope someday, by God's grace, to be at a point where we can be involved in the planting of a church out of Center Church. But that's in God's hands and in His time. Okay, so that is the tagline of Acts 29, a diverse global family of church planting churches. Now, in our time that remains, what I want to do is I want to look at five theological distinctives of Acts 29. And I don't have time to be exhaustive in talking about these five, uh, so I'm just going to comment briefly on each of them. Um, and then if you, you want to follow up on these, if you want to engage in greater discussion or ask questions about any of these, we'd love to be able to do that. So uh, feel free to do that. Uh, let me just name these first five. Uh, or these five distinctives, and then we'll, we'll break them down. So, gospel centrality in all of life, the sovereignty of God in saving sinners, uh, dependence upon the Holy Spirit uh, for life and ministry, uh, equality of male and female with the principle of male servant leadership, and the fact that the church is the primary mission strategy. All right. So we're going to start with gospel centrality 
in all of life. So if, if you would ask us from a leadership perspective, this, this would be primary for us. Okay, and if you've been around Center Church for any time, you know the importance that we place upon the gospel. We, we would say the gospel is everything to us. Okay, it's, it's the motivation for what we do. It's the engine that drives us, but it's also the goal. Uh, so it's, it's what's pushing us, but it's also what's on the horizon. Everything that we do is centered around the gospel. So let me just quickly define the gospel uh, when I say gospel, I'm talking about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, okay? The gospel is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So we want who Jesus is and what he has done to inform all of life, okay? Every part of our lives, we want who Jesus is and what he has done to inform all of that, to orient all that we are, have, and do around him, okay? So there's this tendency— when you read the Bible, there are truths in the Bible. But oftentimes when we read the Bible, what we want to do is we want to get to what do I need to do now? Okay? What are the things that I need to, to perform in so that God would be pleased with me? Okay? The things that we are called to do are called imperatives. Okay? Those are imperatives. As a church, where we really put our roots down is in the indicatives. Okay, the truths about who Jesus is. So the indicatives always come before the imperatives. The truths of who Jesus is are always driving the things that we are called to do. And so we put 90%, at least 90%, if not more, focus on the indicatives, on the truths of who Jesus is. And we say, we call ourselves to believe in those realities. Believe in these things about who Jesus is. And, and then there's this reality about all of our power. The, the Bible talks about all of our power to be and do and live. It comes from Jesus anyways. Okay? And so all of our power in terms of living the Christian life has to be rooted in the gospel. Okay? And that's why I want to keep going back there because our tendency is just to go out on our own, okay? To try and add to something, add to what Jesus has already done for us. But we want to keep calling ourselves back to the gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. It's not about who we are and what we need to do. It's about Jesus. Paul debunks, Paul, I was talking about Paul earlier, uh, the one who wrote the majority of the New Testament. He debunks the idea that the gospel is what we believe simply when we become a Christian. And then we move on to more important matters. So 1 Corinthians 15, the first two verses of this chapter, they read this way. Now I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So notice what Paul's doing here, okay? He's saying, I have been with you before and I have preached the gospel to you. So he's looking back. He's saying, this is what happened. And what happened at that time is you received the gospel. So in the past, you received the gospel. You believed it. In the present, you are standing in the gospel right now. And in the future, you will be saved by the gospel. So the gospel has this all-encompassing reality. The gospel is primary. Yesterday, 
today, and tomorrow. Always. And that is why we relentlessly preach the gospel and call ourselves to believe in Jesus. The reason that we sin, that you and I sin on a daily basis, is because we are trusting in someone else or something else lesser than Jesus. We are trying to establish our own kingdom. We're trying to go off on our own thing. And this is why we continually say, look at the gospel, believe in Jesus, because we tend to go out on our own and, and try to create our own kingdom and do our own type of thing. So the call is always, repeatedly, continually back to the gospel. And the result of this, there's a really good result of this. Um, I was talking with someone recently um, who's been part of the church uh, since the beginning and and they were uh, recounting to me as they went through a tough time this reality that uh, talking with me early on and just listening to this reality as I explained how I, would, how I intended to preach the gospel every single week. So not, not like have this altar call, but to preach the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done every single week. And, and this person wondering, man, what, what is that? And how is that going to work? Um, and them walking through a season of life uh, in the not-too-distant past and being able to say, what a gift it's been for me to understand the gospel and understand who Jesus is as I've walked through this season because it has helped me to have this lens on life that to understand who Jesus is in the midst of, of this really hard thing that I've been walking through. And, and so there's this really good uh, side of this reality uh, in continually proclaiming the gospel and calling us to gospel centrality, but there's also this really difficult part, at least for me as a pastor, I would say. I would say this is one of the saddest things in ministry for myself. Um, sad but expected is that people are repelled by the gospel. Uh, what I have heard uh, from some people and I've heard this uh, at the church that we, were at, that we were sent out of as well and talking with their lead pastor. He encounters this regularly. Um, but there's this reality that when we say the focus is on Jesus, believe in him, it's all about who he is and what he's done, that many people will say, that's too simple. You can't say that week after week. Okay, I, I need something meatier. I need to go deeper. I need more complex theology. I want more than just that. Or there's not enough for me to do. You, you just keep calling me to believe. I, I want a list of things to do. And how quickly that turns into moralism or legalism. Some people will say there's too much grace. There's too, I need more law. I, I, I just which is a funny thing to say, right? Like that there's too much grace. There's too much gospel in all of this. But, but the tendency in all of us when the gospel is not central is to think too highly of ourselves. To think that we can actually add something to what Jesus has already done. Holiness is found in Jesus. Not in anything that we do. Okay? We don't achieve a greater level of holiness. 
by following laws or having this, this regimen of spiritual discipline. There's this reality. If you think of Jesus on the cross, stare at the bloody man on the cross and tell me you're a good person. Stare at the bloody man hanging there and tell me you can add something to who he is and what he's done. Stare at him hanging on the cross and tell me you can love in any way that resembles that outside of him empowering that in us. We need the gospel. We need to keep coming back to that over and over and over. And when we think it's too simple, remind ourselves, I'm not understanding it. I'm not seeing it in all of its beauty. This is what God has given to us. The story of his son, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The gospel must be central to who we are as individuals and to who we are as a church because the gospel rightly tells us who we are and what Jesus has done for us. And, and in all of this, in all of life, the gospel speaks to all of it, okay? As I was prepping to plant Center Church, and I would start to bump into some things, some ministry realities where I felt like, oh, man, how do I handle this? And, and I would go talk with my coach, and his consistent answer, like I would bump into a counseling issue, and his consistent answer was, go back to the gospel. Everything that you need for this is found in the gospel. Who Jesus is and what he has done will provide you the answers for this situation. It's the greatest practical tool that we have in all of life. So gospel centrality in all of life. Secondly, the sovereignty of God in saving sinners. What we find in the Bible is that the Bible portrays a very big picture of God. Okay? The idea that God is sovereign speaks to his supreme power and authority. He is the one in control of everything. He is the one who saves sinners. He is the creator and sustainer of life. The fact that God is sovereign is the only hope that we have in the midst of a world that is wrecked by sin. Okay? Now, I understand that that creates another question. Okay? How could a good God allow this? But we're going to get to that question later in this series. Okay? But God's sovereignty, sovereignty gives credence to huge promises that we read about in the Bible. Here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel has to get practical. Okay? It has to mean something to our everyday lives. And there are these promises that we find in the Bible. So Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So there's this reality that God uh, plants a seed of faith in us. And there are many days in our lives that we probably feel, for those of us who are Christians, we feel like, man, I don't know if, if I'm a Christian. Or my faith feels really shaky. And here's the reality. Here's the great promise. It's not about your performance. It's not about you having a faith that's sufficient, that looks like this person over here that you really admire. 
It's about the fact that God promises to keep you, to complete your faith in Him. It's about Him. There's a ton of hope in that, right? The fact that God sovereignly saves sinners is good news for us. Also, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Many of us have walked through really difficult circumstances. Or maybe some of you are walking through them right now. And the promise that God gives to us is that whatever we walk through, that he will take that and he will use that for the good of those who love him. These realities are not possible if God is not in control. These realities are not possible if God is, unav- is, is unaware, unable to deal with the things that seem to give us opposition. God is in control. He is sovereign over everything. God comes to us and he saves us. So the sovereignty of God in saving sinners. Third, the work of the Holy Spirit for life and ministry. So when Jesus returned to heaven, he gave uh, the Holy Spirit to come and live within those who profess faith in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes to encourage us, to comfort us, to guide us, to convict us of sin, to lead us into truth. We are, as God's people, we are dependent on God's Spirit for all of life and all of ministry. And I know at times we can think, like, I need God. Like, I can handle 90% of things in life, and, and then maybe the last 10%, I need God's help. But the Bible portrays things in such a way that we are completely dependent upon God for everything. And to think otherwise is to think we need less help than Jesus himself, because Jesus himself espouses a need for, or, or a dependence on his Father, okay? Okay? We, we don't want to be in that camp, thinking that we need less help than Jesus himself. But the Holy Spirit then works in such a way as to give us spiritual gifts, okay? So God gives the Holy Spirit, and when he gives the Holy Spirit, what accompanies the Holy Spirit are certain gifts uh, that he gives to us so that we might bless others, so that we might build others up. And, and there's been a ton of controversy around the gift of the Holy Spirit, okay? So what I want to do is I want to read a quote up here uh, from one of the leaders of Acts 29 um, about Acts 29's stance on this. We have deliberately and with conscious intent distanced ourselves from two extremes. We have on the one hand distanced ourselves from the extremes of the word of faith, health and wealth nonsense of the far reaches of the so-called charismatic world. And, And if there's phrases in there you don't understand, shoot me an email, okay? I, I will walk through those with you and help, help you understand. And we have also distanced ourselves from the cynical, angry, dogmatic, spirit-quenching approach to life and ministry at the other end of the spectrum. The idea that God's spirit I- has no impact nowadays. That doesn't mean that we're going to try to find some bland balance in the middle. No, what it means is that we are going to be biblically robust and intentional in our pursuit of the experience of the Spirit. Not everybody in Acts 29 agrees on what gifts still operate and how they express themselves. We recognize diversity there, but we do acknowledge their importance and our responsibility to cultivate them. 
In Luke 4.18, we find Jesus saying this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus came and he was dependent upon his Father for God's Spirit to work in him and to work through him. Ultimately, to bring, to proclaim good news to this lost and dying world. And the same goes for us. If we are to be Jesus' church, we are dependent upon God's Spirit to work in us and to work through us so that others might come to a saving belief in Jesus Christ. All right, number four. The equality of male and female and the principle of male servant leadership. So Acts 29 seeks to let the Bible drive their understanding of male and female. Okay, and the Bible is really clear on this. The value of males and females is the same. The, the worth of males and females, uh, th there's no distinction there, okay? There's no patriarchy. There is this reality that they are on level ground. Every single person is created in God's image. And everybody is given gifts. As they, are, as they put their trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes and li to live in them, everyone is given gifts to be exercised within Jesus' church. And so as women have been wrongly pushed aside throughout church history, Acts 29 stands and says this. Women are to be encouraged, equipped, and empowered to utilize their gifting in ministry in service to the church and through teaching in ways that are consistent with the Bible. And so in any and every way, Acts 29 wants to affirm the role of women within the church, within the bounds of biblical guidelines. But you'll notice also this affirmation uh, that mentions the principle of male servant leadership. So God has given responsibility to men to lead in their homes and churches in a way that benefits others, that will be a blessing to all those who are touched by their leadership. So to be really explicitly clear here, this call to leadership for certain men never allows for domineering control. Never. It never allows for abuse of any kind. None. It is what we read here as servant leadership. It's servant leadership. So a husband is responsible for the flourishing of his wife. So if, if a husband or if a wife is in a spot where they are down, out, suffering, whatever that might look like for them, the husband's responsibility is to come alongside her, and I would say come under her, love her, serve her, build her up, lay his life down for his wife. Similarly, in the church context, an overseer, an elder, is responsible for the well-being of the church. They are called to lay their lives down sacrificially for the good of those who are part of the church. So this is a leadership, as I mentioned, that comes under and serves, okay? 
So often in churches what we found is that leadership is an abuse of authority and it's someone looking down, domineering, and dictating. Okay? True servant leadership finds individuals coming underneath others, laying their lives down for them. This is, this is where that aspect of holiness and humility uh, gets fleshed out as well. Right? A humble leader is not going to lash out, is not going to abuse, is not going to oppress or push down in any way. And just to be clear, th this is not a comment on ability or capacity. Th this is not to say that women in certain contexts don't have the ability to lead or don't have the capacity to lead. That, that's not what's saying this, or what this is saying. What this, or why God invokes this is so that, the, or, or to, bless, to bless women. Ultimately, that's what this is about. God invokes this so that men would be a blessing to women in this regard. Casey and I, uh, in our home, we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, maybe some of the shape that this takes in our house. So, if we're sleeping at night, and we hear the front door uh, get pushed in and knocked down, right? And someone enters our home. In that moment, I, I should never be like, baby, you, you got this one, right? I'm right behind you. You, you take the lead on this one. I'm, I've got your back. That should never happen. Never. Ever. A and there's a million different ways that can look, okay? My wife is capable, okay? But that would be hateful for me to push her down the steps and say, lead me in this. That would be pure hate for me to do that. It says nothing about her capacity, nothing about her ability. It's about me taking the responsibility, laying my life down for her, and leading in that reality. So this principle of male servant leadership is given to protect and to bless. All right. Lastly, the local church is God's primary mission strategy. So Jesus' church is not just a building. It's not a place we go to to feel better about ourselves or to check our spirituality box. A church is intended to be centered on Jesus, which means they'll be focused on what Jesus was focused on. Okay? And Jesus had a mission. Okay? So mission is not an optional program in the church, but an essential element in the identity of the church. Mission is not an optional program in the church, but an essential element in the identity of the church. Jesus says himself that he came to seek and to save the lost. And for those who are part of Jesus' church, they will go and do likewise. Our lives will, will be spent seeking and saving lost people, being engaged in that process. And so one practical reality of this is that the primary focus of growth for Acts 29 churches is through conversion, okay? The idea that there are non-Christians who then become Christians. And, and we would say that about us here at Center Church as well. And, and I don't say this to say like, oh, we don't, we don't want people to come from other churches, or we're going to like um, bar them or put up a sign out, outside and say like, if you're coming from another church, don't, don't bother. We're, we're not saying that 
at all. We're saying our primary mechanism of growth is conversion. We want to be about engaging with non-Christian people, giving them the hope and the light of the gospel so that they can cross the line of belief in Jesus. In order to do this, this requires people to engage the culture. It requires us to put ourselves in uncomfortable and at times even inappropriate situations as Jesus did. The reality is we find Jesus doing a lot of things that were not socially acceptable, right? Like defending a hooker, okay? But this is who Jesus was. This is what Jesus did. And he's going to call us into some situations that are going to be messy. They're not going to be clean cut for us all the time. But if we have a missional mindset, we know that whatever darkness we find ourselves in, that we can bring the light of the gospel into it. So Acts 29 prioritizes the call to mission. And, and here's the reality. Without it, churches will die. Churches will die. So this idea of living on mission, this is the primary way in which we as a church grow. And, and we will live or die on this reality, putting our eggs in this basket, okay? We're not going to throw thousands and thousands of dollars at advertising, though we're also not saying we'd never do advertising either. So we're not saying that's purely evil. So don't hear me say that. But far and away where we want to put our emphasis is on building us up so that we would be followers of Jesus who join him on his mission and engage non-Christian and invite them into our lives, invite them into our church. Okay, so with all of that said, why are we a part of Acts 29? And I would say for all of the aforementioned reasons, for all of those things that have just been stated, that is why we are part of Acts 29. But there's a number of other things as well. There's a cultural piece. Uh, many people who have been in Acts 29 churches when they come to another Acts 29 church, they feel the similarities in those churches. Acts 29 has done a really good job of creating a distinct culture in their churches. And there's a reality that grace, a, a grace-based culture, it, on one hand it will offend and it will repel people, but it's also a really beautiful reality. So the way in which we see some of that, the grace-based culture here at Center Church is we have people across I can say this because I, I know this, but across a broad political spectrum. Okay? But the reality is, when we centralize the gospel, when we rally around that and gather around the gospel, those other things are merely preferences. Okay? We don't need to be dogmatic about open-handed issues. Okay? We centralize around the gospel. And what dictates how we leave is the grace in which Jesus has extended to us, that we would then extend that to others. And it creates this beautiful mosaic where people who are very different come together, they love one another, and they serve each other because of the gospel. And when we centralize the gospel, 
we display Jesus. We display his work, and it is an astounding beauty. A couple of other things here. Acts 29 has provided their churches a ton of freedom for cultural innovation and engagement. And so this is something that we want to do. That there are not a lot of restrictions in terms of how, how can we move towards a lost world. If you look at a lot of the cultural touch points that are around us, you can see hints of the gospel or yearnings for the gospel in our culture all the time. It's everywhere. It's just learning to be able to see that within our culture and learning how to, to look at these cultural touch, touch points through the lens of the gospel and then translating that for people. So, so we want to be engaged with our culture. Okay? So some people, uh, Acts 29 would talk about uh, being theologically conservative but culturally liberal. And I know conservative and liberal have a lot of uh, baggage to them, right? But, but the idea is that we are people who love the Bible, but because we understand the gospel, we understand there's a ton of freedom in how we go and move towards a lost world, how we engage them, how we can go to their turf, not just ask them and expect them to come to our turf, but we go to them. Because Acts 29 has such a, an emphasis on multiplication, uh, there's also this aspect of training, okay? Uh, we want to be a church that are seeking to train others up. And so there's this reality. I, I spend eight hours a week on this, okay? That's all I get for doing a sermon prep, okay? Eight hours. A lot of my other time is time spent seeking to pour into others, to counsel, to disciple, to love on others, and, and training is a big piece of that. And so we as a church, because we desire to someday be more engaged in church planting and multiplication, we want to invest hours and money and time in training all of you up. There's also this reality of, of networking and camaraderie and family within Acts 29 that I have been really blessed with and uh, I hope that as our relationship with Acts 29 deepens more and more, that more of you will be able to experience as well. And then just two last things. This is from a personal standpoint. Why are we a part of Center Church, or a part of Acts 29? Acts 29 places a pretty large emphasis on the health of marriages of lead pastors. And so they have poured into Casey and I, they have loved and cared for us in some substantial ways, and so this, uh, it wasn't a determining factor, but it was something that was considered on the front end, and, and we knew that this would be something that they would love and care for us well with. And, and then also, just the community of pastors here locally, uh, I could say globally as well, but I've got a great touch point with other pastors, and so there's a ton of pastoral support that I receive from other Acts 29 pastors throughout the year. So that is what is Acts 29 and why are we a part of it. If you guys have questions, comments, you, you want to engage or interact on any of this I'd, or other aspects of it, I'd love to do that. Uh, so feel free to shoot me a text or, or email um, and we can engage in this reality. We're going to transition now uh, into a time of the Lord's Supper.